chance to introduce my twin today. <laughs> you may have thought that he was giving announcements and I'm preaching. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and bring up Josh Hollowell. Give him a hand. I had one goal for sabbatical, which was to look more like Chris Mack. So I started shaving my head and I uh, bought matching shirts. So, you know, <laughs> well, it is so good to be back. Uh, thank you guys so much, City Hope, for uh, our sabbatical, our three-month sabbatical. Um, yeah, for all of you who sacrificed so much in serving here and giving financially for the sabbatical, for all the things that you did in praying for us and all of those things, we are so thankful uh, and we are very excited to be back now. Um, and so uh, I was uh, actually, uh, Rome was going to preach this week and then he had a bunch of stuff come up and so hopefully we'll have Rome in and I thought, you know, I haven't done anything in a while. Maybe I should just, uh, you know, come up here and share some things. So, uh, so we'll see how this goes, guys. Uh, I'm, I'm, I might be a little rusty, so you got to bear with me. But to start out, I, I want to recap a little bit about what God has been up to for the Hollowells for the last three months. Uh, and there really is a lot that could be said. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, a ton of different things that I think will uh, affect us as a church over the course of the coming years. Uh, but I want to share kind of an overarching framework for the summer. Uh, before last week, I probably wouldn't have had the language to kind of process through this, but I spent some time alone last week uh, uh, reading a bit about contemplative prayer practices and reflecting on the summer uh, in uh, some pretty cool places. And so I was trying to think through some of those things about rhythms of connecting with God. Uh, and one of the books that I was reading, uh, there was a phrase that I want to use for the theme of our summer. And that was wasting time. The phrase was used to describe contemplative prayer as wasting time with God. Just wasting time with God. I love that phrase so much, and I want to unpack a lot of that in the coming year for us as a church, uh, but really it's a theme for how our summer went. A lot of money uh, was given and a lot of sacrifices made to make the sabbatical possible, and if you're looking at it from the world's perspective, it was kind of a total waste. I didn't write a book. I didn't finish all the books that were on my reading list. I didn't finish all the overdue house projects that we had going on. I didn't discover a new secret to church growth. I actually didn't even finish my 90-day Bible reading plan. What a waste. Except I think that's actually the point of sabbat sabbatical and Sabbath. Wasting time with God. Yes, we, I read, I prayed, I did house projects. I developed a new hobby. Apparently, I love birds. So, uh, thanks to the Wolframs for introducing us to the game Wingspan, the greatest board game of all time. I, like, now have a camera on my bird feeder so I can see my birds, you know. I aged significantly, not just by shaving my head, but by being all about birds now. Uh, but really... Uh, we, we, we laughed a ton, we traveled, we played games as a family, we made wonderful memories. But really the best memories came in the context of no agenda. The best moments of connection with each other and God came in wasting time together. With no agenda, no goal, no outcome. Nothing required. 
just grace. That's actually what we proclaim every Sunday here. That what defines the good news is bringing nothing and God bringing everything. God of all grace. And yet, so often we functionally believe that we must be productive to be loved. That our quiet times must gain some insight deep and profound. And I went to my last trip thinking like, okay, what is the thing that God wants me to get away from this? And the Lord was reminding me, nothing. I don't actually want you to take anything from this. Just spend time with me. Just waste time with God. That's my prayer for us as a church, that we would learn what does it mean for us to waste time with the Lord and then waste time with each other in love and friendship and that actually this city will be transformed as we do those things. That we can have value even in doing and providing nothing. Okay, but do we really believe that? Like, if I were to ask you what gives you value, what are the things that you would say? Maybe you have some good Christian answers. God gives me value. I'm made in God's image. Uh, I uh, follow Jesus, all of these things, and that gives me value. But functionally, on a day-to-day basis, when do you feel that you have value? Is it when you're productive? When you're doing something that provides things for the world around you, whether it's uh, your job or raising kids or uh, volunteering, somehow being productive grants me some kind of value. Your family, money, what are those things that we actually believe give us value? And then what if all that stuff falls away? You know, this summer I didn't lose my job, but I didn't have that as a place to find my value. It was kind of (laughs) weird. Like, what gives me value? But there are often, if you live long enough, something will interrupt those things that bring you value. Injury, illness, debilitating mental health struggles, a global pandemic, disrupting everything that we thought brought us value and making it impossible to go forward in that. Divorce, disowning, moving, death, on and on and on. Life will disrupt the things that we find our value in. Okay, so let's not base it on these things, but let's base it on other things, Christian things, maybe holier things. Find my value in prayer and Bible reading and holiness and not sinning. Except what happens when that nagging sin keeps coming back over and over again? What happens when you have disinterest in the Bible? Where you're like, I know I'm supposed to delight in God's word, but I don't want to read it because I'm bored. What happens when the church is the place that you've actually been hurt the most? Like the church is the thing that hurt you. So how do I actually find value in those things? Well, here it is. 
because I'm out of practice. I'm just going to give you the point of the sermon right here at the front, right? So you don't have to guess at it at all. The point of this is that we functionally believe that these things give us value, but if we are to really be secure in our value, that means being able to function in the world as God intended, loving him and loving neighbor, if we really want to believe, or we really want to do that, we need to be secure in our value, we must believe, and I mean like deep down in our bones believe it, breathe it every day, that the triune God of the universe is truly, madly, and deeply in love with you. Shout out to Savage Garden for that line. (laughs) If you don't know who Savage Garden is, don't worry about it. (laughs) But for real, that God is passionately, even to the point of embarrassment in extravagant displays of his love, he is over the moon for you right now in this moment, as you bring nothing. I'm going to read a text for us this morning from the book of Zephaniah. Uh, If you, uh, I've quoted this passage many times, but it's something I thought about a lot over the summer, and so I just want to share a few thoughts about this passage from Zephaniah chapter 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. You can go to the next one. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, I'm not going to give you a ton of the context of what's going on or the background or any of these things. I really want to focus in on verse 17. But just briefly, this is a prophet written to God's people before the exile. And he's prophesying a day of judgment that will come upon Jerusalem. And yet a remnant of Jerusalem will be saved. A remnant of God's people will be saved. And so he has just been talking about the proclaiming of judgment for sins. And now he says, hold on. Sing, God's people. Sing and exult in the Lord because a coming day will come when he will take away all your sins. And he will be near you. I want to focus in on a few things that this says about God and how it ought to shape the place in which we find our value. It says, cheer up, don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. Now, for the people of God in the Old Testament, in Jerusalem at this time, they are thinking in this way that the Lord is among them because he dwells in the temple. That there's a temple physically present, and this is where God has chosen to dwell. And so to say to Zion, to say to uh, Jerusalem, you have God living in your midst, they're immediately thinking of the temple. And the temple is a theme that walks through all of the scriptures about how God is going to dwell with his people. And he dwells in this special place. God would dwell in Zion. But... 
This here speaks of a coming day in which he will dwell with them in a different way. I didn't see all the details in which how this would get worked out. But the prophet here is prophesying a coming day in which God will dwell among his people in a different way. And in the incarnation of Jesus, we see this happen. That God comes to dwell among us in the person of Jesus. That if you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. And that God came and dwelt with us on the earth. In a person. In Jesus. And he came to be a mighty savior. To be a mighty savior. That the reality is, though we have sin, though we have disobeyed against God's law, though we have broken it in thought, word, and deed, not doing what he tells us to do and doing what he tells us not to do, all of these things that require God's judgment because he is just and glorious, that reality, he says, I will deal with that. I will come and I will save you. I will pour out my judgment upon Jesus so that you can have eternal life, so that you can have God's favor, so that you can be in God's glorious new city. God will dwell among his people the judgment and sin of the people of God needed to be atoned for. And needed to be atoned for not because God, so that God could love them, but needed to be atoned for because God already loved them. You know, sometimes when we think about the gospel, we think about Jesus providing for us a Savior so that God would love us. No, it says, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. God already was madly in love with us. That's why he sent Jesus. He already loved us. And he sent Jesus to die in our place and to rise again so that any and all who trust in him and him alone could be forgiven of all their sins. Could have this pronouncement, cheer up, fear not. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Now this takes on a brand new meaning for us as the church because when Jesus, after he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven and sent the Spirit to dwell in his people. So when the prophet says, fear not, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Old Testament people of God looked to the temple in that. We can look around this room to see that. That God would dwell in us, his people. That God, by his spirit, makes his home in the heart of the believer. So if you are trusting in Jesus, when it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, he is right here in you. And that we, together, corporately make up the body of Christ. That we are his body his temple, built upon the foundation of the apostles with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. He is not far. He is near. Now, if that's, 
if this is true for you, if you're trusting in Jesus, you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've confessed your sins to God, and you say, God, please have mercy on me, forgive me, then God is a mighty Savior near to you right now. And these three realities that he talks about in verse 17 are the three things I want us to think about this morning, about the realities that give you value. If this is true, if Jesus is really among us by his spirit in the church and in us individually, and these three realities are proclaimed to us, then we can find our value secure in them and our lives will be transformed. So here are these three realities. First, he will rejoice over you with gladness. Now, the, we've been in the Psalms all summer, right? And rejoice is a common refrain in the Psalms because they are the songbook of God's people, right? Calls to rejoice, to sing about how good the Lord is. This is a call to rejoice. Except, it is God who is rejoicing. You see, it is God who will sing over you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Now, I don't think we like the idea of God singing over us. That makes us uncomfortable. Because we're like, I don't, I mean, God's going to sing about us? We sing to him. But maybe we can come to terms with God singing over us, sort of, maybe. Sure, God could maybe sing over us. But that second word, gladness, he sings over us with gladness? What is it that brings you genuine delight and gladness? What gives you a sense that all is well in the world? You know, recently for me, birds have kind of given this <laughs> sense of gladness for me. I got this big woodpecker. Like, my bird feeder is about this big, and this big woodpecker, he takes up half of this thing, flying in. He's awesome. Just brings some joy just to watch them in their freedom flying around. Brings a smile to my face. What is it that brings you that kind of gladness? Is it the perfect cup of coffee? The perfect late night drink by a fire? Friends? The smile of a baby? What, what is it that brings you this kind of gladness and joy that makes you think life is good? Life is all right. I feel well in the world. What this text says is that God feels that when he sees you. He feels that kind of gladness and joy when he sees you. Now, what it doesn't say is that he will rejoice over you with gladness when you obey him. Now, certainly, our obedience does bring him glory. But that's not what it says. It does not say that he will Rejoice over you with gladness because of what he knows you will become when you get over those sins and when you get to be a better person. No, it says that he will rejoice over you with gladness. You, right now, as you are, bringing nothing, bring gladness to the heart of God. Yes, but you don't know me, Pastor. You don't know. You've been gone all summer. You don't know how I've been sinning. 
The Lord has gladness when he looks at you. It causes him to sing. He knew exactly who you were when he came and got you. He knew exactly what your struggles would be. And even before the foundations of the world, he loved you. And said, I will set my heart upon them. My delight. I will sing about them. The second phrase I want to look at is actually the third phrase. I think the middle phrase kind of brackets these two and is the most important one. So let's move on to the last one here. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's very similar to this first one, right? Rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. He's not just willing to sing about you. He's willing to sing loudly about you. Extravagant public display of affection. Doesn't care who hears that he sings over you. He's not hiding you from the world. You know, often we think, well, okay, if God loves us, well, you know, he loves the church, and we're going to put the best ones up in the front to kind of display the best, and we'll just hide in the back, you know. God will let us in as long as we sneak in, right? No, he puts you front and center. He's not embarrassed that you are a part of his church. He loudly proclaims to the world, I love you. These are the ones that I love, that I choose. I will exult over you with loud singing. He wants the world to know what he thinks of you. He wants the world to know that he thinks you're awesome. He exalts over you. Every chance he gets, hey, do you see this child of mine? Do you see them? They bring me great joy and gladness. Let's sing together about this child of mine. Finally, the middle one here. God will quiet you with his love. Nothing. He requires nothing of you. He doesn't require your singing, your Bible reading, your prayer, your obedience. No amount of Bible reading or prayer will erase the stains of your sin. No amount of good works in the world will make up for the ways in which you've disobeyed God. No amount of productivity in the world or making enough money or being the right kind of person will erase the pain of traumatic experiences that you've had. There's nothing in this world that will erase those things and make you find value. The Lord loving you, quieting you with his love. You know the space that you have with a friend or a spouse or a roommate or someone where you can just sit and be quiet together and be okay? That's the kind of thing that this is talking about. You don't have to fill the space with talking because it's awkward. You're just comfortable being. Right? Isn't that where life is really great? But we don't often treat God that way, do we? When we go to pray, we're like, okay, here are all the things I need to pray. I need to make sure I read my Bible well enough. I need to, if I just 
uh, felt conviction about some sin, well, I'm certainly not going to the Lord right now because I'm kind of a mess. So I'm going to wait until I clean myself up a little bit, and then I'll go, and I'll have a nice, uh, a nice, great prayer. It'll be articulate and wonderful, full of great theology. But what this says is that what God wants from you is just to let him love you. Sometimes he just wants you to sit there and waste time with him. Just to be loved by him. Just to have him communicate to you because he's so near to you by his spirit dwelling in you. I love you. It's okay. I love you. We need to let this quiet prayer, this listening to God, being loved by him, to quiet the voices in our head of shame. The words of Satan. The voices of our own, uh, maybe uh, someone who was disappointed with us, a parent or a friend or a teacher or whoever it was, that you have that voice on repeat in your head that says, I'm not enough, I'm not good, I'm worthless. And you need to allow the Lord to quiet those voices by him declaring to you, no, I love you. I love you just as you are. I bought you just as you are. You are mine. I love you. This is the thing that's my prayer for us as a church moving forward. That we would simply know that God loves us. Yeah, I think the city can and should be transformed by radical mercy and justice. Absolutely. We're going to keep talking about that. I think the city can and should look at our fellowship and be confused as to why these folks choose to hang out together. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you hang out with those folks? You might not even like those folks, right? Like, and you guys are weird and different and not easily defined by some other thing other than Jesus. That should be true of us, absolutely. The city can and should hear the good news of Jesus proclaimed over and over again, that there is good news, that the way of this world will end, and that all the ways in which you seek to find value and worth in this world are fleeting, and yet there is good news because the God of the universe has said, I love you and I'm sending my son to die for you, so come to me. If you're weary, come to me. But to do all of that, because even all those things, we're not going to get all that right. You know, uh, in the five years, actually six years in like a month that we've been doing this thing, we've messed up a lot. We've messed up on what it looks like to do radical mercy and justice. We've messed up on what it means for us to be a fellowship that loves each other. We're going to mess up these things. And so we need to make sure that we don't find our value as individuals or as a church in us doing the right thing. But more than anything, what we need is for the city to look at us and simply be struck by the reality of us being a people who are extravagantly and embarrassingly loved by God. That each of us would say, along with John, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. I don't know about you guys, but I'm the disciple Jesus loves. 
because I've experienced his love. And that that would so pervade this city that we are so rooted and deeply planted by the good news that the God of the universe values you, that he made you and that he loves you so that you can come and find real rest from the weariness of trying to find your value anywhere else. Because if we can do that, if we can really root ourselves in that, we will be a strange people in this city. Those who are quieted by the love of God are a strange people. Not running about, trying to make sure we're productive enough to find our value, trying to make sure we're good enough that people will love us, but being secure in the love of God allows us to radically love other people and actually give to them what God has given us, which is space to just be, requiring nothing of you. It's the good news of the gospel. This is what we need, simply to be before God. And so, this is my prayer for us, that we would embrace this reality and just let God love us. It's going to take some time for us to figure out what that means. It's going to take practice for us to learn how much am I trying to base my Christian worth and value on what I'm doing. Making sure I'm reading enough, making sure I'm praying enough, sharing the gospel enough, having a great ministry, all these things. But I want to hit on this so much so that those of you who are bent towards productivity get a little frustrated with me because I'm just going to keep telling you to do nothing, to just sit and be loved by God, to allow him to overwhelm you and to quiet you with his love. Let's pray together. Father, we... We love you. We are overwhelmed by your goodness. Lord, I pray that right now, each of us is probably experiencing some level of desiring that reality and knowing why we don't deserve it. And hearing those whispers of why that sounds great for you, but I don't deserve it because of who I am. God, would you quiet those voices of shame by your spirit? that our spirit would cry out with your spirit, Father, Abba, and that you would just quiet our hearts with your love, that we would know more than anything else that you delight to sing over us, to hold us in your arms near to you, and to love us. Jesus, would you do that this morning for each of us? By your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.